How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 91. We're counting... It's one digit left, Zeke. Oh, yeah. One digit countdown. We've got nine episodes left. We're now left. into the 90s. And speaking of into the Back 90s... in the 90s. Jake, are you yes. ready for your quote? Yes, I am. Quote number two. Let's do this. Yes. So you got last week right. Yep. Congratulations with Goodfellas. Thank you. Um, and this week, I have a very... Yeah, I have a lot of faith in you to get this. Okay. I am having an old friend for dinner. Oh, Silence of the Lambs. Is that your final answer? That is my final answer. Wait, yes, 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 it is. You would be correct. Okay, good. You threw me off, sir. You're like, wait, are you sure, Jay? I'm like, wait, what? Am I wrong? So, episode 42. True, 42. Yes. 42. Yes, you were correct. We did Silence of the Lambs, so I know for a fact... We did do that film, <laughs> that I've seen it. <laughs> You've seen that film. Well, we saw that together in first year. We did. So We did, we did, we did, we did. Yeah. Um, there were obviously other ones I could have done that were probably a little bit more ambiguous, but there is yeah. a lot of quotes from that film. Okay. A, like, a lot of real juicy quotes. So a few juicy... Juicy as in delicious Mostly quotes. from Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter. Of course, so. yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, that was my thing, and I think you have cool. a, th- a new thing. Yeah, so I just wanted to... I saw an article, and there's a lot of news that's come out in the last couple of weeks, especially about the state of cinemas. Of course, we're very lucky, Zeke. We've been in a somewhat normalised version of, of life in Western Australia for months now. Mm-hmm. The Shire. The Shire. <laughs> <laughs> but um, not everyone is still in that position. There's a lot of countries, and we won't name any names, there's a lot of countries that... Are still very much struggling, and there's a lot of movies that are very much still getting delayed. So I wanted to touch on that. There is one second. There is an article here from Time that sort of dwells into a lot of the new films. So films like Dune got delayed mm-hmm. into the next year. No Time to Die again got delayed into the next year. Black Widow got delayed. I think Soul is now coming straight mm-hmm. to Disney Plus. Yes, uh, yeah. much like Mulan did. Same situation. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. It's um. Probably you're at the premium charge you're going to have. By the way, Mulan's totally going to be free in two months. Yes. To uh, Disney Plus subscribers. So. Oh, well, there you go. I'm pretty confident in that. But anyway, I just want to read a bit of this article from time in terms of uh, some of the financial stuff that's going on because a lot of these films, of course, are getting delayed because Tenet didn't do as well as they were hoping for. Mm-hmm. Still did pretty well, which I'll get to. But anyway, Time says, <clears throat> movie theatres are in trouble. It's been a lackluster year at cinemas, to say the least. Movie theatres have sat empty during spikes in the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, movie houses in the two biggest markets in the US, New York City and Los Angeles, remain closed as those cities fight to keep infection numbers under control. Over the summer, Hollywood looked to Christopher Nolan's highly anticipated tenant as the saviour of the movie-going experience. But when the film finally premiered after numerous delays, I think it had three delays in total, costing Warner Brothers. $400,000. I'm just adding that in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it trickled out to little fanfare. It has managed to bring in about $300 million, mostly from overseas, although the box office totals falls short of the rest of Nolan's films. And I also believe that uh, Warner Brothers are still not going to make uh, not even a profit. I think they're going to barely break even on this. Right. If not, no. So, But that is interesting that most of that comes from overseas, so including us, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would have had, we had a million sessions over here of their film, but 
a lot of U.S. cities did not. Uh, in the past two weeks, as number as case numbers have risen across the U.S. and has become increasingly apparent that people simply do not feel safe going to the movies, studios have begun to push the last of their 2020 films to 2021, dashing those hopes. On Monday, Cineworld, which owns Regal Cinemas, the second largest theatre chain in the U.S., announced that all of the 663 cinemas in the U.S. and Britain would close temporarily, affecting 40,000-plus employees. AMC, the largest theatre chain in the States, will stay open, uh, although the company's stock fell 10% following the rival's statement on Monday. Uh, So the article goes on about this and all the delays and all the movies that are pushed, and uh, there's not going to be a lot of Oscar (laughs) contenders this year, I don't think. Which does give... Uh, some hope to some films that did come out in the last year that we thought might not mm. get. Uh, I think Shirley's, you were saying it early, Shirley's a perfect example of that. Yeah, and Baby Teeth. Yeah, well, hopefully. Um, Please, God, give Baby Teeth an Oscar. Give it something. Uh, and that does at least give us some positives. It also means that Tenet has a really good chance of sweeping a lot of the Oscars. Hmm. Um, it might deserve a couple, maybe. I would say, but if it hasn't got the same sort of blockbuster competition it's competing against, then mm. yeah, it could very well pick up a lot of the technical awards, I yeah, imagine for sure. it would. Well, that, that's the thing, because a lot of people were anticipating Dune getting a lot of the technical aspects, and mm. that's not a contender anymore, you're right. No, so that means that that's a good chance for it to you be... You know, I think Netflix are finally going to win the Best Picture Oscar. I think they're finally going to do it. For which film? I mean, uh, Mank is about to come out, the David Fincher film, and mm. uh, we'll talk a bit about it soon, but next week, of course, there's the Aaron Sorkin film comes Netflix, so yeah. I think they've got a good chance this year. They probably do. Yeah, yeah there's some. there's been some really good films on there over Netflix. I would have to mm. look. It's very you tough. You have to go I through mean, it, yeah. As we move into what we've watched during this week, I've now clocked in 261 films this <laughs> year, so... Uh, it's been, it's, it does turn into a bit of a mess. Yeah. Um, so what have you seen this week, Zeke? Um, yeah. So I've caught five films, uh, including the film of the week. Yep. Uh, I'm not going to give a lot of time for, uh, a nice girl like you, which was one of those just really, really crappy, uh, sort mm. of drink to cringe sort of, uh, esque films. I saw uh, your rating for it. Yes. Wasn't a good rating. Wasn't a good rating. So I'm just going to move straight <laughs> from that. I have nothing to say about it, really. That's positive. Um, moving into... I watched, actually, quite a few epics. Epics? Um, this week. Mm, um, okay. And when I say epics, I mean, like, your, your two and a half hour... Uh, basically, the best way of gauging it would be, like, your Braveheart, your cinematic epics. Ah, uh, okay. I see um, what you mean. And so I watched uh, Silverado, which is a 1985 uh, sort of homage to spaghetti westerns gone by. Mm. Um, it's oh, it's yeah, it's got a pretty positive rating on Letterboxd. It didn't do too much for me. I found it quite. Uh, it's done by Lawrence Kasdan, who uh, oh you know, oh did, he's the did Star Big Wars Chill. guy, isn't he? Um, Lawrence Kasdan. I have not got him for that. The big thing he's done is the Big Chill which is another film of his I have seen that I also eh, I thought was fine, but wasn't for me. Um, it was, Maybe I'm getting the wrong like, name. I don't know. But uh, I also managed to catch, uh, for the first time, uh, the Tom Cruise uh, samurai film, The Last Samurai. Ah, okay. What would you think? I really liked it. I ah, actually very really nice. liked it. I thought the fight choreography was great. Um 
Edward Zwick um, has also done uh, the other films I've seen from him are Defiance, uh, Legends of the Fall, yeah, and Blood Diamond too. And I really like Blood Diamond. By the way, um, I just I just checked, and yes, this is the same Loris Kasdan that wrote Empire Strikes Back. He directed go. that film. So there you go. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I was a big fan of Blood Diamond. That's probably my favourite film from him. But mm. I would say it'll probably Last Samurai would be on par with it. It's really good. I mean, we all know Tom Cruise's... Uh, I actually went on a bit of a Tom Cruise... I'm halfway through watching The Firm, so I'm not going to... Okay, interesting. Um, Review it yet. I'll talk about it next week, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I just had a kind of a... I think with Magnolia being added onto Netflix too, there's a lot of uh, Tom Cruise being put mm. on Netflix, so been watching a bit more of his stuff i um, want to i've only seen the first two maybe three mission impossibles right so i want to catch up especially the, the i've seen most... only the later ones okay from ghost protocol onwards yeah yeah so but i really want to watch the one that came out <clears throat> was it last year or the year before fallout didn't we see that no i haven't seen it oh okay you might I have saw it with jack or someone i might sure. have seen it with jack um and then, yeah, so that was... I really enjoyed that film. Um, I sort of like the fish... I've always liked the fish-out-of-water epics, like your mm. Dances with Wolves and stuff like that. Gladiators. Gladiator. Like that, yeah, yeah th- this would be in that category. The yeah. Gladiators, the, the Brave Hearts. Um, uh, the cinema. <laughs> yeah, they very much feel like a golden age sort of picture. Yeah, for um, sure. Uh, yeah, so I really enjoyed that. And I managed to catch the sort of... I guess it's technically the buddy cop comedy... Uh, done by uh, Balthazar Cormacor, who... That's a name. It is a name. He did Everest, <laughs> um, which I quite like. Um, that's probably his most oh, prominent Oh, are you film. talking about Two Guns? I am talking about ah. Two Guns. And he also did Everest. So, Mark Wahlberg. Um, yeah, I thought it was fun. I mean, it's tough, to, it's tough to watch a film with Denzel. And even Mark, if he's put in the right situation. <laughs> right. I've, I've warmed to Mark Wahlberg in the last year between this and Instant Family. I think I'm like, oh, he's got his place. Okay. You know, I think yeah, it's I don't, I don't mind him. He's great in the first Ted, I feel like. Yeah. If he's, a- if, as him, I guess. <laughs> that's the thing. If he's cast in the right role, then it works. But yeah, yeah that's pretty much all I caught from the last week. Uh, what about you, Jake? There you go. Um, I haven't seen a lot either this past week. I actually took the time... This Zeke, this has been a long time coming since uh, long time. we've been on the task to do this, but the movie is finally available, and I finally got to watch Dirt Music in the cinema. And uh, the, so, for those who don't know, uh, we actually drove past on my the cul-de-sac that I live in. They actually shot some of the film there, and we drove past them shooting it. So there's a bit of a, a bit of a little history there yeah, that we share. And yeah. I, fi- so I finally saw the film. It's the latest Tim Winton exactly. film adaptation. Um, I don't think either of us are big fans of of Breath. I yeah, it's either Breathe or Breath. I, don't Breath. I think it's... I would say, yeah, it's one or the other, this, yeah. which was a surfer mm. film that was shot down in Denmark uh, yeah, well, a couple I, years ago. I feel like I have kind of similar thoughts in regards to this. Now, the difference here is I have read the book Dirt Music, and I, for love of God, I don't remember which episode I talked about the book on. It would have been Ooh. the last 10 weeks or so. Yeah, I have no clue. But... I read the book and I, my assumption immediately was I don't think this is going to be a good adaptation. Mm-hmm. Not for a lack of like, oh, you know, the film, you know, Australian films can't be good sort of thing. It's like, no, of course not. The 
worry was more akin to the fact that the way the book was written from the perspective and there's two perspectives you have mm-hmm. the um you have georgie and fox who are sort of the lovers it's a romantic sort of film and the perspective that the book sort of takes with them it feels very into perspective and the example i used is there's a point where she sort of in sort of a monologue in the book she goes on a tangent about this item that her her dad or something has and it goes into detail about the history of that item like things that are hard to translate to screen Mm. without it feeling edgar wrighty or with voiceover yeah right and i said if there's no voiceover the film's in trouble and there is zero voiceover in this film and look i so i went into it assuming this isn't going to be great and i was surprised at how much i did like it Mm-hmm. enough I don't think it's a great film I think the actual production of it is pretty excellent in terms of the visuals and the the look of Australia and and, and unlike uh, the Naked Wanderer it doesn't feel like an ad for Australia mm-hmm. it just feels like a film shot in Australia really well like even the sound and the music and I know they got um uh, Julia Stone and stuff to do some of the music she's actually in it as a character mm-hmm. as well I actually really liked all of that stuff and it was refreshing because the, the trailers they played before the cinema were just so like Oh, everything's well lit and bright and white. And then this film starts and it's like, oh no, there's actually a lot of interesting photography and there's a lot mm-hmm. of blacks in here and they're actually using the the, the vastness of Australia. I really liked all that stuff. But much like with Breath or Breathe, and I apologize, I don't remember <laughs> what the... I've got, I've got it up on my It's shelf. right there. I've got my glasses on. Um, but it's spelt... You, I think you can say that word either way. I think it's oh, Breath. It's, it's Breath. You're I right. Think it's breath. There's no E in it. Yeah, there you go. I found it. I'm looking at your DVDs right now. Uh, the thing with Breath is like we kind of had similar thoughts. Where like the visuals and stuff were quite nice, but it was the story. And what and I'm about some of the odd casting decisions, like making the oh, kids who age, yes. who are meant to be aging five or six years, and not changing right. them at all. It's not even that for this film, but I also the casting is not great. Mm. I think neither of them. So you got Kelly McDonald. Uh, who plays Georgie. I think she's all right in the role. I think she's hindered by the writing because what made the book kind of great, and again, I, I have similar issues with the book as well in terms of the pacing and the story, and it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot going on at any mm. given time, and the film suffers of that because it's a very faithful adaptation uh, with the exception of the ending to Little Tweet, which I don't really think helped or hindered it in any way. I thought she was like a good performance but again i think she was hindered by the fact that the film sort of plays with the element of sympathy we need to feel sympathy for her as a character and all of the when i read the book i felt that i was like okay she's sort of this mother stepping into this family her mm-hmm. kids you know she's the stepmom so they don't really see her as an actual mom her husband's sort of busy with this really dangerous job and her other family like her sisters and her mum and dad like they've got a bad relationship all of that came together to make me feel like i really love this character in the book and in the movie they sort of play with the the way that that's ordered mm-hmm. so that when she does the thing she does with the guy it's too early in the film and i just think she's an asshole so all the stuff with the sympathy or that comes a little too late in the film yeah right right so that stuff really bothered me and i thought um the guy played Fox. I got his name here. Uh, Garrett Headland, which I just thought he wasn't very well cast either. Interesting. I thought they definitely could have picked someone with a little more liveliness to him. He just felt sort of bored hmm. as opposed to like the elusive, mysterious guy. He just felt sort of bored. And it's like, I don't know why they ha- are meant to have chemistry. It doesn't feel like they have chemistry. 
That's so fair. It was sort of those, yeah, those wider elements that I was... So I'm a little mystified about, and I, and I had to laugh at the beginning of the film. You know, when you have like your title card, like oh, Universal and mm-hmm. Screenway. I, I swear to God, I just started to laugh in the middle of it. The, there was like eight title cards. I'm not joking. It had the Universal logo, and then it had Film Four. Then it had uh, Aquarius Films, Cornerstone Pictures, Wildgate Films, Screen Australia, <laughs> then Screen West. That's so good. I was like, gee, the movie hasn't started yet. And you're already... You're, <laughs> it's already yeah. been 10 minutes. Well, actually, <laughs> I, had to, I had to laugh. I had the, to laugh. The funny thing is, I actually mm. did watch one other film this week. Ooh, and cheeky. you actually... Um, Sneaky. ...jogged my memory with it, because I haven't logged it, and I just logged it just then. Ooh. Um, but I it, too, myself. was a Australian film. I managed to catch Let's the see. 2019 release, uh, Top End Wedding. Oh, okay. Um, which I felt... I haven't seen this. No. And uh, this is stars uh, Miranda Tapsell, who was probably most prominent in The Sapphires, which was oh, yeah. reasonably commercially successful I've heard it's, film. I've heard it's a good film, yeah. It's solid. Uh, it's not... Okay. It's got a good cast. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I think it's Gilliam, Gilliam Lee is the okay. partner. It's basically just a... Uh, sort of marriage road trip film that takes place in Darwin. Right. It's got some funny that, jokes. That is a very strange spelling for Gilliam. Um, I'll give you that. <laughs> perfectly suitable photography. Uh, good, like, perfectly suitable cinematography. Mm. Some, Like you said, some really nice sort of Australian visuals without being too overtly advertis- you know, yeah. advertising. The story yeah. was pretty cool. Had some good uh, sort of stuff, like family roots sort of stuff. And... Mm. This film does go one step further to talk a lot more about Aboriginal and Indigenous culture, which the Sapphires tapped on a little bit, but didn't really go too much into okay. that side of it. Um, this one, it's it's overtly a part of the story. Okay, um, that's cool. Yeah, and it's it's yeah, it's a really you know, quietly fine film. Gotcha. Um, but it, okay, I think you what gave it three stars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't think it was impressive like mm. like it wasn't like oh my god like i think we're in a constant state of i mean that would be screen australia not screen west but mm. i think we are in a constant state of searching for the next hounds of love sort of situation <laughs> where we walk out of a film and go wow that was shot in wa one Boy. day one day <laughs> um, and before i forget uh no i could not figure out what was shot on my street in the movie dirt music there were two there were two times where i said oh that must be it but then a later scene, they pulled the camera further back and you could see it's clearly like an on-location lake house. And you're like, oh, well, that can't be it. That doesn't Maybe they were just staying there. But why, just... though? I don't know. We have to get someone from Dirt Music find... to come on the show. We've got, we've got mutual friends who worked on it, so I'll, I'll, I'll follow the breadcrumbs and... Uh, report back. Report back. What, what did you guys shoot over... Oh, I almost said the... I'm not going to say the suburb. <laughs> I almost said our suburb, collectively. <laughs> No worries. Well, um, uh, move into a career section. Oh, if you well, have any... I've got one oh, more film. Beg my pardon. Um, Sorry. I don't have a lot to say about it, but I should mention that I watched it. So I watched Trumped, Inside the Greatest Political Upset of All Time. So this is a film that came out just a couple of months after the 2016 election finished. Okay. Um, and it, it sort of follows political junkies uh, Mark Halpin, uh, John Hillerman, and Mark McKeenan. I okay. believe those were their names. Anyway, I think I mean they were actually doing a documentary for like a show that they usually do, and this just turned into its own feature because I'm guessing at the time a lot of people didn't realize that Trump was going to actually win yeah. the election. So it was a bit of a 
I look back at the election, and what what I appreciated about the stalker was that it, I found it quite entertaining in in terms of just seeing the live reactions of people mm-hmm. and the conversations that people had leading into it. Because I do love sort of reading about politics and and all of these all these people, especially leading into the the twenty twenty election, which is almost over. And um, I'm not even going to say anything about that. Nope. But I, f- I found the doco in itself quite entertaining and quite fast-paced, and I loved seeing those conversations. And I, I appreciated it over something like a Michael Moore doco where he did the you know Fahrenheit eleven mm-hmm. nine, which just felt like a wildly unfocused version of this doco. I appreciated that this was very much focused on, oh, we're just going to focus on the candidates of this election and the whole campaign that leads up to it. And that's the end of the film. But in the same token, I think having that objectivity of, oh, we're going to show you how he won the presidency. Mm -hmm. What actually happened? It's like, but this came out like a month after it happened. Mm -hmm. So they have no answer. They sort of give you the ability to read in between the lines, but it's a very reflective doco. So you see the film crew and it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's a documentary in that sense where you see the live reactions, everything happening, but there's no answers. There's no, you know, it's not, Cambridge Analytica did all this, you know, none of that. It's so I, don't, I think I knocked some points for that because it felt like it didn't say a, a lot. Yeah, or, it felt more like a, a knee-jerk reaction to the event. Exactly, and and the the peak behind the curtain was not enough to justify like mm-hmm. oh it was entertaining, but especially with yeah. like what's like you said, you know, you bring up Cambridge Analytica and the Great Hack and that documentary, yep. and there's been multiple documentaries that have discussed all of that sort of stuff in one way or another the mm. social dilemma touches on it okay um i still haven't seen that one so uh it's not obviously uh, the the be all and end all of that documentary but there are other documentaries that have addressed that yeah. election and they definitely uh aided by the fact that they waited they yes. had a little patience and they waited at least another year or two to comment on the, all the, the trump political campaign and all yeah. of that but yeah i just i threw it in because it was like it was it was a good watch yeah, was that on Netflix? Uh, that was on Stan. Okay, so that was a Sydney. I was like, ah, I mean, I'm I'm into it. Let's watch this. Yeah, I've had that too. <laughs> That's like between these like two and a half hour epics. I was like, I could go for a hundred minute comedy. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame yeah. you. Yeah, like oh, I really like Last Samurai, but can I watch if I watch three or four of them? That's like ten hours, you know. Yeah, it, it Just builds up epics. Okay, well, um, <laughs> do you have anything you'd like to add in your career update um, section? Not really. Nothing I can talk about some of the stuff i was talking about still hasn't come out yet i know you've ordered some new gear though if you wanted to talk a bit about that yeah yeah so um because i started working back on film sets a couple weeks ago Mm. um which i think i talked a little bit about the the first week was it no it was no you it was in in the middle of uh, you had shot three days i think yes and we'll be going back for another two days um But yeah, um, I got a couple projects. As, is, as happens. Yeah, I got a couple projects starting literally as of uh, next weekend. Mm. So next week on the show, I'm sure I'll have more to talk about with uh, the documentary that I'm yep. going to be editing. Um, not a lot, but uh, that is something coming up in the next week. But yeah, in response to mm. picking up this some more work, I have gotten back into the the gear shopping. 
You've fallen uh, into it. Oh, it's a <laughs> trap, dude. Like as as Donald Trump would say, billions and billions and billions. <laughs> my thing is, and I, I, I bought a lot of my gear a couple of years ago, and I've sporadically bought bits and bobs. But when you start buying that stuff, you just can't stop. And I have I have an addictive personality. Like if it's DVDs <laughs> or vinyls or gear or um, I just get or hockey jerseys. Yep. Like I just. I'll just go for it and, you know, turn the dial to a hundred. You're a collector. I like collecting. Um, so yeah, um, I've bought a couple of, uh, like monitoring devices and such, and I'm looking into a couple of RGB lights. I would like nice. to acquire in the next couple of weeks, bought myself a speed booster for EF mount stuff because we have access to facilities that can give us cine lenses, but they're mm. on an EF mount and I only have, we only have MFT cameras. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I'm really excited to be using that stuff in, in the next nice. couple of months because I don't want to say I have a lighter schedule for the rest of the year, but I do. Um, lighter than the last few months. Yeah, absolutely. Gotcha. Um, and hopefully we'll be pushing, there'll be a lot more creative updates now. Mm. I think our career section will actually start to get, uh, be back to being a, a meaty more, section, more on our regular show. meaty section. Well, Not I just think... the Jake updating stuff. <laughs> well, to be to be fair, um, I think most people in our area are only just getting back into this as well due to COVID. Well, and, and it ties back to that article you brought up at the start yeah. of the show. Um, it all it's it really feels like the wheels are starting to move again on a lot of projects, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, Maybe instead of no time to die, our films will be playing in Hoyts. That could be a positive that comes out of this, you know, places, maybe mm. not Hoyts, but, um, or maybe Hoyts will have to cave more. I mean, they showed a lot of screenings for Baby Teeth when Baby Teeth was in Hoyts. Yeah, yeah, which was great. Um, and a shitload of screenings for a film we're about to talk about in a minute. Yeah. so <laughs> Which I guess, absolutely relates to this which, discussion. Which, you know, we will talk about in the second half of the show, but that's not even, like, that's an Apple release. It's an Apple TV release, that yeah. this film. <laughs> Um, it is, but I think just in terms of the kinds of films that people are watching. You know these what's days. funny? With all that debacle that The Irishman had last year, if The Irishman had come out this year, there would not even be a debacle about having that in the cinema. Oh, right. Because you know how they had to have the two weeks in the cinema, and, yeah, and well, Netflix was... didn't really want to put it in the cinema. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Um, you're right. It definitely would have been a different response. Although it is funny because Netflix are still, I mean, down here in this, um, what WA, they're still doing it. Like Mank and mm. Chicago Seven, like they're still getting little theatrical releases before. But I think now it's actually more beneficial for them. Yeah, because most countries still can't watch preview screenings of it. So yeah, no worries. Well, yeah. um, I'm ready to move in the second half of the show. If you are, there you go. Let's do it. No worries. Well, uh, Jake, what are we watching this week on the show? We're watching On the Rocks. Hi, Dad. Hey, kiddo. The story of a young mother who reconnects with her larger-than-life playboy father on an adventure through New York City. And Zeke, guess who's in it? Uh, Bill Murray! Yeah, that's pretty much the whole selling point, right? (laughs) So this was actually a really kind of fun experience for you and I to go see before we jump into the nitty-gritty of the film. Um, Mm. Because obviously we went and saw this at Luna Leadville, which is... uh, the biggest indie cinema I think we have. 
I guess it's it's nice bourgeois cinema. Yeah, it's not Hoyts, but it's um, it's yeah, people know about it. Exactly. Um, so we went and saw this. We were going to see a seven o'clock screening. There weren't any. There was one ticket left. There's one ticket left. We got embarrassed at the counter. Yeah. So we ended up doing the eight thirty, but then we had a Which, nice. Keep in mind, eight thirty didn't exist until that day. They That's added that last minute. That's true. We've had some funny, weird session time stories in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> um. Yeah. And, um, so we went and saw the 8.30, but we had a nice chill sit-down pre-film. Some drinks. A couple of beers, and we were having a conversation about shot lists. <laughs> and I'll, I'll there was cool. a relevancy to this, this point that I was trying to make, because, um, yeah, I think because we were having such a camera-heavy discussion prior to the film, uh, it was definitely one of the things that I was looking out for in, in the screening. Yeah. Um... And we were talking about how even really big films, because on, and this ties back to our career section too, on student films, I've been in the last couple of weeks, I've seen multiple shot lists that have over 150, 200 shots in short films that are going seven or 10 minutes, Yeah, which are, which is simply absurd. And I even met, we even made the point that the first film that we did together I said to you, we did under 60 shots, and then we found the shot list. And it was under 60, yeah. which, to, to your credit, I was I was adamant that we had double that many shots, mm. and it was only 52. Although we had a lot of, um, uh, like, we did a lot of takes that we we composited different parts of takes into the image, and we mm-hmm. very David Finchered it in a lot of ways. Yes. But, um, no, you're right. So I think that was something that, while watching this, we were kind of having a game with ourselves. We were, we were counting how many angles of coverage were used per scene. And, and there were some scenes with, you know, Bill Murray and uh, Rashida Jones, Rashida Jones, I finally figured out how to pronounce it, uh, where they're having this big five to ten minute conversation. They only use like five or six shots yeah. throughout the whole There's scene. There's two sit-down diner scenes in which, yeah, they have no more than six shots. Mm. Um, we're going to talk about more than just that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> absolutely. But I thought that was a nice lead into this yeah, sort of, of conversation because um, this film for... It's kind of relevant too because th- this film, unfortunately, didn't have you know. It's just as well we had this game kind of going on and on the side because we both found this film quite a uh, quite flatlined compared mm. to our conversation about Virgin Suicides last week on the director's corner. That's a good point. Yeah, we did we did her first film last week, and now we're doing her most recent film in twenty twenty, mm. and. Yeah, I think we had a lot of... We were comparing it to a lot of other directors with this film in particular, which, yeah, there just there was such a different feel to it mm. where it was just very flat and empty in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, I still think it's an okay film, Yeah, but there was not a lot to take away from it, to be frank. Yeah, and I think that it's really interesting because we went from a conversation about talking about her director's voice on her, her corner last week and... That was quite an intrinsic conversation where we talked about translation, you know, loss of translation, and Marie Antoinette, and obviously uh, Virgin Suicides, which was mm-hmm. the uh, the title episode. And it's funny to go from those to this one, and this one did feel, it didn't feel like a, her a Sophia Coppola film in no. a lot of ways. Um, uh, I think the two biggest comparisons we comparatively brought it to, I said it had the Woody Allen New York aesthetic. Yeah. Um, but I think Bombok and Greta Gerwig's sort of style was a little bit more uh, 
apparent in this in this film. Than... Yeah, it's sort of at least the and again we're focusing on the camera so much. I mean, the simplicity of the use of camera really did stem from a Bombac film mm-hmm. because it is quite performance heavy. Yeah, and I, I, I think the performances were fine in this film for the most part, but it felt like the when you do so little with the camera, when you just sort of rest the camera and be like, okay, we're just going to capture these moments and scenes of dialogue, that there really has to be more to the play, and that's why when, when films like, you know, I know this is a random example, but like when I watch something like Phantom Fred, mm-hmm. it's like it's allowed to be shot simplistically because there's so much happening in the performances. In front of the camera. And and Bombac, when you watch something like Marriage Story, and I think we're going to compare it to Marriage Story a little bit, there's just so much more happening in those films. Even though physically it's still two characters in a room talking to each other, mm-hmm. there's still way more happening in those scenes than some of the scenes that happen in this film. Yeah, and I think that there's also visual payoffs in both. I think the big thing that we were talking about is even though Bombac has that tendency to leave the camera there and sort of let mm. it rest. Um, he always does give sort of a cinematic payoff at some point where there is a bit of cinematic stylism in, in what the camera's doing, um, which creates... It allows that breathing room, whereas this film was sort of just a compilation of a lot of sit-down and talking, whereas yeah, I can I can think of multiple times that Marriage Story uses stylism or Squid in the Whale, which was one of his earlier films. Yeah, which I still haven't seen. Yeah, um, where it's not uh, they like allow a bit of visual awe to seep in, and um, we talked about Lady Bird in the car post film too, a film that mm. for the most part is just a collection of of scenes and talking, and there's a couple things. Well, most great films are, but you're right. There's usually something. To spice it up a little bit. Yeah. Whether exactly. it is the dialogue or the performances or... Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Um, and I think, yeah, this film just sort of lacked that, I think. Um, there's very little to no conflict. It really is just a hangout film. Well, I wouldn't um, say that. There's definitely a core conflict, and I'll get into a bit of that and why I think it ultimately fails. Okay. Because um, this is something I had to sort of talk out loud to myself the other night, and I it kind of clicked for me. I was like, I now know why the conflict and the the story of you know the husband and the wife and the dads, but all of that I think sort of falls apart towards mm-hmm. the end, and I'll get to why. But yeah, I don't know. I like that it's a small cast though. Yeah, it's a very grand of films. Like what we talked about in the first half of the show is this is actually an Apple TV release. Mm, which their might, first one, yeah. Yeah, which might speak a little bit to... It definitely wasn't lacking a budget, but it felt pretty limited in parts. Um, like, yeah. it's definitely not like the most... Uh, from a financial point of view, the most mm. cinematically... Uh, uh, like impressive film that she's yeah. done you know you think of Marie Antoinette where it was very stylistic whereas this film sort of just doesn't have that like that visual flair that that it, film had I, I just thought of this term it's almost hyper contemporary yeah where it, it's so contemporary that it's almost not interesting and you bring up New York and and sort of the romanticism of that and you see Woody Allen films 
And I, I got a tinge of that, but not enough for me to be like, oh, wow, New York is a character at this film. Yeah, it just sort of felt like background. Particularly with Alan, who's mm. so good with um, romanticizing locations. I mean, we talked about it on the Midnight in Paris episode. Yeah. And, and then we had the When Harry Met Sally episode with Rob Reiner, and he even, like, subtly does that. In his film, um, we talked about how he subtly romanticizes, like, New York is very much just sort of a the setting of the film it's mm-hmm. not about new york but there's still visual flair in some of those scenes just by the color palette whereas this film you almost would be mistaken at times to think that it wasn't it was in new york because well i don't know about that it was definitely always new york and i think it was the busyness of it and even the studio apartment and stuff like i think that all helped to say it was new especially because they do travel to another location towards the end True. of the film um i guess we'll get to that later but I, I think it was distinctly New York, and I'm not saying that, oh, it should have taken place in, a, you know, um, New Mexico. Like, I, I don't think anything like that, but it, it just didn't feel that special. Mm. I don't know. It was hard to pinpoint what they were going for with that. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, so we probably should get into more of the plot beats yep. um, and stuff. So uh, the logline's pretty, pretty much sets the stage for exactly what mm. this film is. It's sort of a... Uh, about a a mum who's a, a renowned writer at this point and is having hitting a bit of a writer's block and hmm. just sort of hitting a bit of a rut in her marital sort of life and just in general having a bit of identity crisis and yeah where she is and where she's going and well with- the the main thread is that Dean her husband is acting kind of suspicious in several ways and there's this assumption that he's cheating yes. and this of course gets Bill Murray her dad to come in and uh, get very excited about the thought of uh, outing him in a way. Yes. And that really is what drives the story. That's the driving question of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is is it? Would you say that's the driving question? Is is he cheating on her? Yeah, I'd say so. Okay. I mean, it becomes very apparent towards the end. It's not so much about that. It's about the relationship between the father and the daughter. Yep. But um, which is going to lead with some of my major problems with the film. Um, it becomes that very apparent that he is, um, Bill Murray's character is this womanizing uh, art collector um, who his daughter loves but knows what he is um, and is pretty mm. open in uh, calling him out on that stuff. And he's pretty open with, uh, you know, sort of how he acts. And he thinks, he basically rationalizes his behavior by saying, well, all men act this way. Right. But it's a primal, it's a primal thing, thing as he always yeah. constantly ties it back to, and he is a incredibly charismatic presence on screen. And I'm not talking about Bill Murray; I'm talking about the character he's playing. Um, Are you sure about that? Yeah. Well, I don't think <laughs> Sophia Coppola knows either, uh, because I think th- I honestly think that was a bit ton in cheek, though, because like when you hear about Bill Murray and you talk to him about Bill, like people do adore him. And I feel like that was sort of a tongue-in-cheek way of being like, oh, yeah, Bill, this is Bill Murray sort of walking around and, like, he knows everyone's names and, and everyone's mm. sort of... Well, he knows a guy, he knows a guy. Yeah, exactly. And no one's ever, like, creeped out. Like, oh, he's an old guy. It's like, no, everyone adores him. Yeah, it's way. definitely... It's I, I made this comparison. It's not like Clint Eastwood and the Mule <laughs> for some reason that uh, this, you know, this elderly man is... A capable of charming twenty-year-old women, which gotcha. is what Eastwood does in the Mule. Um, yeah, it never feels creepy in this film. No, 
No. And I think it comes back to um, how open his personality is about that stuff. And only do in the latter parts of the film, we start to see little cracks Mm -hmm. in the persona that he outwardly goes with the public. Um, But yeah, he's sort of the one that's uh, putting these really um, feeding into these seeds of doubt that are in, uh, you know, Rishinda Jones's uh, head, you know, Mm. about uh, he's sort of enabling the, uh, her, her, her worst innermost thoughts to uh, fester um, by, you know, having private investigators and constantly uh, being sceptical about his yeah. behaviour. Well, he's enjoying... And that's a line in, even in the trailer, which is, oh, could you at least pretend not to enjoy this so much? The the frill of the hunt of trying to, to catch Dean and cheating. And mm-hmm. I guess we're going to begin a bit of spoilery territory now because uh, I want to talk a bit about Bill Murray's, I guess, or his name's Felix in the in the film. Yes. I want to get into a bit of his motivation because I think the film makes this pretty overt at the end. She even says that it ultimately is more to do with him just hanging out with her, getting time to spend with his daughter. But I also think there is an element of, you know, we learn that he also had issues with his wife and there was you know, infidelity there, or, you know, just simply cheating on each other or mm-hmm. him cheating like, on her, essentially. Yeah. And I, I think that there's almost this... If, if he implants this seed into his daughter about, you know, the the primal nature of men and that this is... Men are crap, <laughs> essentially, what he's trying to say. Um, I think I think that was interesting because, again, it's like, well, what his motives are? Is he trying to, to see this into his daughter so that he can be appreciated by her or, or he's forgiven? See, I, so I guess this is one of my major problems with the film and I actually think... I mean, we, we were talking about Coppola's films... Mm. We, we I've had problems with the way multiple ones of her films have ended. I didn't really like the way Marie Antoinette ended, or I didn't like the way uh, Lost in Translation ended. And this film, this film follows that trend. I think the ending in the last fifteen twenty minutes of this film, are where it really kind of dips, um, because so many threads get wrapped up in such quick succession, and right. the falling out between Felix and Laura in in Mexico is it's just fixed like they she just sort of forgives yeah. him and moves past it i think the word i used for you and i'm not even just talking about the ending i'm talking about the film in its entirety mm-hmm. is it's an anticlimactic film yeah and it's a small film and it doesn't take itself all that seriously in all fairness but it was anticlimactic it was like oh i guess it's over i guess you're right these threads are just sort of very loosely well, tied together. Every, everything will just go back to nothing. Ch- nothing changed in the world. I think. Um, no, you're I, right. I think that's the real problem with the film. Is I felt like their relationship was not estranged at the start, nor was it by the end. So nothing changed, even in the father-daughter relationship. Mm. Felix was one of the few people that she actually could call and talk to. She talked to him on the phone. That yeah. was that was him, that very first phone yeah. call? Okay, I wasn't 100% sure, but so that makes sense. he's a supportive... He was always... And I, it comes back to the opening. Uh, there's uh, On a black screen, there's an opening dialogue. Of, I was... Yeah, I was going to bring um, this up. Where Bill Murray's basically saying that I'm always going to look after you mm. and like look out for you. And then it cuts to the wedding between the two of them and, and such. And... I think that that pretty much surmises their relationship. It's like, just because he's had shortcomings as a person, 
it's never affected his love, unconditional love that he has for his daughter. Yeah. And the film, by the end of it, I mean, he ha- he loves her at the start. They don't have an estranged relationship. If anything, he just works. But she's also a fully grown woman that also works now mm. too. So maybe if she was a lot younger, it might be a bit different. But I, I definitely agree with you that the, the if there was an estrangement of some sort, it wasn't clear enough. There was one scene, I will give the film a little credit, there was one scene, and I think you actually walked out to go to the bathroom during this scene, mm. was when she meets with, I think, her mum and, like, some sisters or, like, a family of some kind. And I think they do talk... Actually, no, I take that back. I think they only talk about Dean potentially cheating on mm-hmm. on her. So I don't even know if they bring up um, Bill Murray so much. I'm, I'm struggling to remember, to be honest. Yeah, but, but to your point the estrangement isn't very clear at the beginning or even at the end. No. The, the, the and it becomes very clear that the only reason he's been fueling these doubts is that he wants to spend time with her yeah. in his own sort of neurotic sort of way, I guess. But it, it's odd because it's like, even throughout the film, there are multiple points. Um, there's a particularly juxtaposed scenes of him sitting at a restaurant with her and they're talking about uh, her husband potentially cheating. Yep. And he gets her ice cream and she doesn't ask for it. He just gets it. Ah, yeah. And it's sort of like they both end up, you know, indulging in on it. And it's sort of, uh, it's, you know, it's very much two people having a, a, you know, a conversation about this. And, you know, he just does these things because he knows that they'll help. And then that's immediately followed up with the very awkward sort of loud dinner sequence between Laura and her husband. Ah, yeah. Um, and I think that... They... Uh, the ice cream's a good pickup, though. The fact yeah. that he's always... And again, with the investigators and going all out with the getaway car and, like, he, he does all these little extra things for her that she not, doesn't necessarily shake her head at. No. She's like, oh, I didn't ask you to do that, but I'm going to indulge anyway. Exactly. <laughs> and I think it just comes back to... It's, it's kind of a, a weird way... Um, to, it's just it's weird that he enables uh, this behavior and mm. then when he's called out on the fact that he should never have done this in the first place he never there is the film doesn't give it enough time to breathe really no I mean and that's my problem with some of the editing in general yeah is there are a few moments in particular the example I used to you when we walked out was the scene towards the end when um, sort of all the cards are on the table between Laura and Dean and they take the elevator to go down. They're going to go outside to talk about why she flew over and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the scene in the elevator is like, okay, I see what they're trying to do. It's a little bit of an awkward. They have to wait in public before they can have this conversation. Yeah. But then the scene itself is only like four seconds long. It doesn't give enough to create that tension and awkwardness. No, to the point where I'm questioning why the scene even exists. Yeah. Because you don't let it breathe. You don't let the moment of clarity, the moment of like, oh, ha it's a funny moment. You don't let any of those bits... Yeah play out i don't think it comes back to even that fight it very rarely goes out of first gear and it's like mm-hmm. you know we it's hard not like obviously you don't want like the whole point is that he was never cheating and this relationship is not going to end right but the fact that there's anticlimactic well there's little <laughs> yeah there's little to no release he actually gets a little upset and then that's pretty much it but it's like and yeah, anticlimactic is the best way to describe it because there's no real tension release there. It's yeah. basically like, well, I thought you were cheating. He goes, well, I don't. I'm not. And She's like, all right. <laughs> and that's it. And then they move on. And then they have that 
that other they have the payoff to why he no. went to the jeweler with the watch because that was why he went yep. to the jeweler on 52nd street and um yeah and then it leads to the bill murray fine animal scene and that's that's it well here's the thing because i'm pretty sure the bill murray scene happens first their goodbye and then it cuts to the dinner scene where they exchange yeah. watches. And I'm glad you pointed out because I thought that was a strange way to edit. I thought it made way more sense for her to swap the watches out. Your little symbi- uh, symbiotic moment of, oh, she's, you know, she's putting her, hus- uh, her dad aside for her husband. She's going to focus on this family now. Mm. I got that. But then that was the end. It's like, I think the Bill Murray scene should have been the, the cut to black. Yeah. When he's driven off. I mean, that would have been a better... Oh, because again, it's just a little less anticlimactic that way. I don't know. It's very strange. It's, yeah. um But that's pretty much all I have to say. I've enjoyed the performances. I think the two of them have pretty solid chemistry. I think I did. I think and Bill Murray has chemistry with himself. <laughs> I th- yeah. Um, and I think you're right with the tongue in cheek sort of like, oh, well, everyone loves him. Get it? Because everyone loves him. Um I think that's definitely uh, present. I definitely think um, I said this to you uh, during uh, during the film. She did remind me a lot just in her visual appearance for a uh, you know a Scarlett Johansson type. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that I wouldn't be surprised if she got gauged to do this film, but was probably doing some other films. Uh, Possibly, it would have been a nice like reunion of sorts. Yeah, but I also think this right film is, age. Yeah, I think the film's just too small for it to be that ton in cheek. Yeah, because yeah. it, it is a very small budget film. I mean, some of the shots we even had a focus we were talking about, which was a little some strange. very odd camera work. Yeah, um, so it feels like they put general. this together very quickly, which is fine. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a, for Apple TV. It's fine, but I think it's getting to this point. We had this big conversation in the last couple of years that, you know, even earlier in the show, we were talking about this could be the year that Netflix picks up a best picture. Right. Um, and by not limiting, you can't limit that to just Netflix. I mean, eventually Apple TV might be in that mm. uh, conversation. Um, well, I mean, they could already because this got its theatrical release. Yeah. So this should be eligible, really. Yeah. I so, don't think it really deserves any Oscars no, this year. No, I can't imagine it would... But that's the thing. So just because something's done cheap and quickly does not mean uh, you can kind of excuse that stuff because now it's such a big proving, like, these streaming platforms Mm. are putting out, you know, things like The Irishman and stuff. So it's like... And I know Apple TV's way, you know, it's way more in its preliminary early days, but it's still done by Apple. So it's not like they don't have money. In all fairness, I think they're just distributors and the A24 actually produced the film, which... In all credit, I mean, A24, we, they're the new Miramax. We don't need to yeah. talk about what A24 is doing for cinema these days. I saw a funny meme today of, um, like, Bart this from The Simpsons, Bart, with, like, a little Band-Aid. He's, he was labelled A24, and then he put a Band-Aid over Lisa, who was labelled just cinema, <laughs> or La Cinema, which I thought was quite funny. Oh, that's pretty funny. Um, so, in all fairness, I think A24, we should give them the props. They did make this film, but... Okay, um, which, which means that, you know, with all the other amazing films that come out of A24, there's a mm-hmm. high bar. So there stuff, is, yes. You know, stuff that's... Things like that, whether it's a stylistic choice or whether the camera just wasn't in focus, but there definitely were shots that were very odd. Like, yeah, they changed their depth, but the rack, it doesn't rack with them. So it was very odd, um, just in general. Yeah, but. I know I know, little things like that. I think, I think the only thing I want to really 
just discuss or put on the table before we move on mm-hmm. is so we talked about how Dean the big the big surprise is that no he wasn't cheating on his wife no. and he was just doing his thing he's just a busy husband building this new business and and that's that yeah my thing is the, there's a bit of an the film really tries hard to make make his cheating and there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that kind of go unanswered you talk about the jeweler sort of thing so okay well that's sort of explained but the very first thing of him climbing into bed and then sort of having that weird reaction to his wife waking mm. up and then just falling asleep, stuff like that was never really yeah. response or given. I don't know. Just if the film tried so hard to make us think that and then be like, ah, oh, psych, we're going to pull the rug There's under just you. a little too many coincidences. Exactly. To, um, things that just help the plot but don't really have a real... Like the big one, like her... like when she's trying to check the phone for messages subtly and mm. his passwords change. And he go, she goes, oh, you changed your password. He's like, oh, yeah, it's a security, a new security measure at work. Right. And it's like, well, that's a bit convoluted. What work business is going to be well, like? Well, even you take that a step further where that he just has no messages with, um, I forget her name, oh, Fiona. Yeah. It's Fiona. And by, yet, by they're, and yet they're so close. Yeah, and there's just no texts. Yeah. And you're right. It's like, well, if there wasn't a secret going on, which we now know there was no secret. They are very close. He lends her the uh, the the place to stay so he can go home early at the end. The overnight bag. Too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the um, the what was it like a shampoo or something? My th- my one thing with the text could be that he does say Fifi later in the film, and she did type that in is Fiona. True. So, but that's a very mm. I'm reaching at that point. Yeah, well, it's, there's just too many. The film was so distracted trying to convince us that he was a cheater that when it flips the table on us, there's just too many lingering questions. And because from the very beginning of this film, we're led to distrust this guy, distrust Dean, by the time that he's like, oh, I'm actually a good guy, Mm. and the film just ends, there's no... You don't... It's anticlimactic again. That's why I use that word I wasn't a big fan of his performance too, or maybe that's the way he was written. Um, It's a balancing act. Yeah, especially when you're... And it, it does tie into this conversation because... When you're trying to label him a cheater, but yep. then flip it on us, at the, like subvert the expectation, there needs to be because he he played the the potential cheating husband part pretty well. It's when it flipped, mm. there wasn't enough of a tonal shift there. I think they cast him for one end and not the other. So yeah, well, my... my I said this to you as well. My one clue because I did think that in the back of my head. Oh, he's probably not cheating. Yeah, there's part of me thinking that. The one scene that told me definitively, okay, he's definitely not cheating on her, is the it's pretty much the only interaction he ever has with Bill Murray. When Bill Murray's walking out of the apartment, he's walking in, and they have that, oh hey, how's it going? You know, Felix, or you know, Dean, and he, Bill Murray, is so distrusting of him mm-hmm. and gives him nothing. He kind of almost scolds him and just walks off without a word. Yeah. And Dean is very confused. He's like, why is he acting this way? Mm-hmm. And this is all in his face. Yeah. And my thinking was, if he was actually cheating on her, he would be shitting bricks right now. He wouldn't just be, oh, that was weird. He I would mean, be like, oh, God, he knows, he knows, he knows. He'd just be a little bit more nervous. Yeah. So that kind of gave me the other side of the table. I was like, okay, that I like that. That's very early on, too. Yeah, definitely first act still. Mm-hmm. Pretty early on. All right, well, yeah. Anyways, would you like to move into highlight scenes? Let's do it, Zeke. I like it. Oof. Um... Probably Bill Murray singing. 
Okay, okay. Very nice. Um, it actually leads into a really nice scene where he talks about um, the uh, how uh, Laura's how he met Laura's mum mm. and sort of the, how that relationship worked. And then he talks about the affair and he goes into and he gets quite emotional and yep. talks about how the woman he had the affair with died earlier in the year and he was he sort of had a bit of a mortality because this is the guy that as for the most part of the film been acting very much like a kid like a horny teenager yeah um, he's and been, he's, he's the cool guy he's, he's the cool, cool guy he's the, he acts like he's a freshman in high school you know mm. he's like a senior he's, you know king of king prom king kind of guy you know incredibly charismatic always getting you know he's wooer of ladies and this is sort of a very mortality based uh moment for him where he talks about uh you know he talks about laura's mum and then on top of that yeah talks about this moment where he really feels like he's starting to like you know he's accepting his older age it's an honest moment for sure yeah that's a really nice moment nice well i'm gonna go the other way and talk about a scene where he is very much the playboy sort of fun guy. Um, and i got to say, I know it might sound a little artificial, but the scene when, you know, they're, they're scoping out the dinner and then they start chasing after the car and then it leads into the cops pulling him over and that whole exchange that, that Bill Murray has with the cop where he knows the dad and all yeah. that stuff. I thought that was really clever. I know you like that scene a lot as well. It was really funny. Um, it reminded me a lot of the Intouchables with the pretending that he's like foaming and oh we gotta get him to the hospital and he convinces the cops to drive him to the hospital i thought that was a nice little ode to that scene which of course they redid in the upside with brian cranston and and chris hart kevin hart Hart, you're right yeah um i like that scene a lot and i just like the excitement like we talk about how this felt like a film that was very done very quickly Mm. and very cheaply but the scene where they're like chasing after the taxi i was like oh this the way they shot it it's actually authentically exciting and and yes. fast pace and it feels like they're going very fast and driving like a madman and and then the exchange is really funny and again just a very intouchables esque moment so that's my highlight scene for on the rocks nice nice well on the rocks is currently out in cinemas and i imagine it's coming to apple tv relatively soon on october 23rd there you go so very very soon speaking my language my boy well <laughs> Switching gears, it's time to move into what is actually new in streaming platforms and cinemas this week. It's a big one, Zeke. Prepare your butt. Um, My butt is prepared. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so coming to stand this week, you've got films like uh, Grimsby, Mm -hmm. uh, alongside the Chronicles of Riddick, The Mummy Trilogy, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and 1974's Murder on the Orient Express. Those are all coming to stand this week. On Disney+, Plus, Lost in Everest, sees a team of climbers set out to find Ivine and his climbing partner's camera, which he found could be about history. So I think it's a documentary feature. And it seems very interesting, very visually pleasing. Clouds is based on a true story and follows a teenager who, upon learning of his cancer, forms a music group and creates a viral album. So that's coming to Disney+. Plus. Sounds all right. That does sound pretty cool. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, Disney kids type film-esque, but the story seems good. It's based on a true story. So there you go. Uh, Classics this week, uh, this Sunday, the 18th of October, uh, Dune is playing, of course, Lynch's Doom, sadly, not Villeneuve's, Mm. sorry, we're still waiting on that one. So it's at Luna, and then the following night, before sunset and before sunrise, double screening. I think I kind of want to go to that one. Is that this week? That's this coming Monday. Oh. So next Monday. Oh. (laughs) You're very excited. I've never seen them. 
and I'm a Linklater mm. fan. And I've never seen them either. But yeah. So maybe that's uh, next Monday. There you go. Uh, at Hoyt's throughout the week, you're getting more Bond films, much like last week. This week, you're getting For Your Eyes Only and The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, some more Will Ferrell films, which I feel like they've already done recently, but like, mm-hmm. they must have been popular because they're playing Anchorman, Step Brothers, and The Ballad of Ricky Bobby yet again. And then finally, in terms of classics, Black Panther is also replaying in cinemas. So you got to get to catch that one. New in cinemas. Told you, this is a big week, Zeke. This is a very big week. <laughs> Hope Gap sees a couple's visit with their son taking a dramatic turn when the father turn, uh, when the father tells him that he's plans to leave his mother. I feel like this is one of those pre-COVID films that never came out because that sounds very familiar. Mm. Uh, but that's definitely coming out this week. I Am Greta, which... Please don't compare Greta Thunberg to Malala. Please. I know they're doing a Malala reference there. Please don't do that. Uh, I Am Greta is a documentary about, you guessed it, Greta Thunberg and her international crusade to inform the world about its environmental problems. It's getting pretty panned on IMDb. I noticed that. Sounds panned. (laughs) Not so bad on a... a Rotten Tomatoes is a pretty good score. Uh, What's the other one? Metacritic's got a good score, but IMDb especially... People are not taken too kindly to this film. Uh, Rebecca is an adaptation of a 1938 novel of the same name, which is a young newlywed arrive at her husband's imposing family estate and must battle the shadow of his first wife, Rebecca, whose legacy lives on the house long after her death. It gives me a bit of uh, Shirley vibes. Yeah, it does give me a bit of Shirley vibe. Yeah. And I, and I made sure to check the two newlyweds are played by none other than Lily James and Arnie Hammer. That's a good couple Ooh, right there. That is a good couple. Oh, baby. I really like Army Hammer. He's great. He's like... I love his twin brother, too. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke. Get it? Irresistible will see Steve Carell play... <laughs> I'm just trying to transition as hard as I can. Um, Irresistible will see Steve Carell play a retired Marine one run for mayor in a small Wisconsin town. I saw the trailer for this today, and... Eh. Looks okay. Not giving you... No. It it was trying to be funny, but it wasn't funny, so... Um, Steve Crow, you're better than that. You're better than that. And finally, a group of seniors make plans to break out of their retirement home to achieve their unrealized dreams before it's too late in Never Too Late. Da-da-da! It is never too late. Indeed. Well, none of those are what we're watching next <laughs> week on the show. <laughs> but, Jake... I'm going to mess you up one day. I'm going to secretly read the film of the week. Oh. And you can't say that. No, I can't. <laughs> but Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, we're watching The Trial of the Chicago 7. Well, we want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now, but in it. Aaron Sorkin tackles the infamous 1969 trial of seven defendants charged by the federal government with conspiracy during the countercultural protest at the Democratic National Convention. It stars Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, and Joseph Gordon Levitt. And I can confirm, Zeke, this film is great. Cool. I'm very much looking forward to it. <laughs> um, yeah, we talked a, you talked a little bit about it last week on the show. Yes, yes. Um, will you be giving it a rewatch this week? Absolutely. There you go. I mean, the film's great, so I'm happy to rewatch it, but there's, there is a lot in it to unpack. So no uh, I think it's this Friday. So very much got, looking forward to it. The weekend. Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. <laughs> I was Zeke. I was Jay. And we'll catch you next week with the trial of the Chicago Seven. Order in the court. <laughs> <laughs>